Okay, my friends, uh, if you're tuning in, I'm thinking it's probably single digits for audience members at this point. I'm not sure. I'll, I'll know soon when I look at the uh, analytics. Anyway, we're here together to read Bluebeard by Kurt Vonnegut, and um, I'm going to go back and, and read the little uh, beginning I read to you last time since it's been a few days and then we're going to roll right into uh, the rest of chapter one. Having written the end to this story of my life, I find it prudent to scamper back here to before the beginning, to my front door, so to speak, and to make this apology to arriving guests. I promised you an autobiography, but something went wrong in the kitchen. Turns out to be a diary of this past troubled summer, too. We can always send out for pizzas if necessary. Come in, come in. I am the erstwhile American painter, Raybo Karabekian, a one-eyed man. I was born of immigrant parents in San Ignacio, California in 1916. I begin this autobiography 71 years later. To those unfamiliar with the ancient mysteries of arithmetic, that makes this year 1987. I was not born a cyclops. I was deprived of my left eye while commanding a platoon of army engineers, curiously enough, artists of one sort of another in civilian life, in Luxembourg, near the end of, the war, near the end of World War II. We were specialists in camouflage, but at that time were fighting for our lives as ordinary infantry. The unit was composed of artists, since it was the theory of someone in the army that we would be especially good at camouflage. And so we were, and we were. What hallucinations we gave the Germans as to what was dangerous to them behind our lines and what was not. Yes, and we were allowed to live like artists, too, hilariously careless in manners of dress and military courtesy. We were never attached to a unit, was quotidian as a division or even a corps. We were under orders which came directly from the supreme headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Force, which assigned us temporarily to this or that general who had heard of our astonishing illusions. He was our patron for just a little while, permissive and fascinated and finally grateful. Then off we went again. Since I had joined the regular army and become a lieutenant two years before the United States backed into the war, I might have attained the rank of lieutenant colonel at least by the end of the war, but I refused all promotions beyond captain in order to remain with my happy family of 36 men. That was my first experience with a family that large. My second came after the war, when I found myself a friend and seeming peer of those American painters who have now entered art history as founders of the abstract expressionist school. My mother and father had families bigger than those two of mine back in the old world, and of course their relatives back there were blood relatives. They lost their blood relatives to a massacre by the Turkish Empire of about one million of its Armenian citizens who were thought to be treacherous for two reasons— First, because they were clever and educated, and second, because so many of them had relatives on the other side of Turkey's border with its enemy, the Russian Empire. It was an age of empires. So is this one, not all that well disguised. The German Empire, allied with the Turks, sent, impress sent impassive military observers to evaluate this century's first genocide, a word which did not exist in any language then. The word is now understood everywhere to mean a carefully planned effort to kill every member, be it man, woman, or child, of a perceived subfamily of the human race. 
The problems presented by such ambitious projects are purely industrial. How to kill that many big resourceful animals cheaply and quickly, make sure that nobody gets away and dispose of mountains of meat and bones afterwards. The Turks, in their pioneering effort, had neither the aptitude for really big business nor the specialized machinery required. The Germans would exhibit both par excellence in one quarter of a century later. The Turks simply took all the Armenians they could find in their homes or places of work or refreshment or play or worship or education or whatever, marched them out into the countryside and kept them away from food and water and shelter and shot and bashed them and so on until they all appeared to be dead. It was up to dogs and vultures and rodents and so on and finally worms to clean up the mess afterwards. My mother, who wasn't yet my mother, only pretended to be dead among the corpses. My father, who wasn't yet her husband, hid in the shit and piss of a privy behind the schoolhouse where he was a teacher when the soldiers came. The school day was over and my father-to-be was all alone in the schoolhouse writing poetry, he told me one time. Then he heard the soldiers coming and understood what they meant to do. Father never saw or heard the actual killing. For him, the stillness of the village, of which he was the only inhabitant at nightfall, all covered with shit and piss, was his most terrible memory of the massacre. Although my mother's memories from the old world were more gruesome than my father's, since she was right there in the killing fields, she somehow managed to put the massacre behind her and find much to like in the United States, and to daydream about a family future here. My father never did. I am a widower. My wife, nay, Edith Taft, who was my second such, died two years ago. She left me this 19-room house on the waterfront of East Hampton, Long Island, which had been in her Anglo-Saxon family from Cincinnati, Ohio, for three generations. Her ancestors surely never expected it to fall into the hands of a man with a name as exotic as Rabo Karabekian. If they haunt this place, they do it with such Episcopalian good manners that no one has so far noticed them. If I were to come upon the spook of one of them on the grand staircase, and he or she indicated that I had no right to this house, I would say this to him or her. Blame the Statue of Liberty! Dear Edith and I were happily married for 20 years. She was a grandniece of William Howard Taft, the 27th President of the United States and the 10th Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. She was the widow of a Cincinnati sportsman and investment banker named Richard Fairbanks Jr., himself descended from Charles Warren Fairbanks, a United States Senator from Indiana and then Vice President under Theodore Roosevelt. We came to know each other long before her husband died when I persuaded her, and him too, although this was her property, not his, to rent their unused potato barn to me for a studio. They had never been potato farmers, of course. They had simply bought land from a farmer next door to the north, away from the beach, in order to keep it from being developed. With it had come the potato barn. Edith and I did not come to know each other well until after her husband died and my first wife, Dorothy, and our two sons, Terry and Henri, moved out on me. I sold our house, which was in the village of Springs, six miles north of here, and made Edith's barn not only my studio, but my home. That improbable dwelling, incidentally, is invisible from the main house, where I am writing now. We're going to stop there for today, my friends. I will post these with some due diligence in the days forward. We're about midway through chapter one. I look forward to reading with you again soon. Onward.